Gemini season. I don't know what that means. I just know that's a thing. <laughs> and it's also a full moon. Raise your hand. If you listened to the newest podcast in Dayton last week. My hands raised, but you realize they can't see this. Welcome to this week's edition of An Hour of Your Life. I'm Kim. And my name is Steve. And I am referencing, of course, the 937 podcast, which is our new venture that had what I like to think of as a soft open last week. Yeah. Do you th- would you say that's accurate and it, fair? That that's accurate because we're not on all the platforms yet. It's we're gonna not, take a, it's gonna take a little bit of time to get on some of them. We're not on all the platforms yet. All three of your hosts were not present and accounted for last week, but it was in our. You know, we didn't. There's there wasn't a whole lot going on, but now there is. And uh, check out Wednesday evening. Check out the nine three seven podcast where you are listening to us now. So you can hear, if you're local, hear what's going on in the Dayton area. If you're not local, there's still some really cool local bands that our buddy Terry is going to be talking about that you can find on various streaming platforms. So introduce yourself to some new music. I am going to have to say I'm a lot more comfortable today <laughs> than I was last yes. Wednesday night. And I don't know why, because here on on an hour of your life, we we tell stories. Yeah. And that's easy. I'm a, I agree. And it was I was very uncomfortable. It was definitely outside of our box, but you know what? It's fine. Well, we were a little awkward when we, if you go back and listen to episode one, two, three of an hour of your life, it was a little awkward too. We'll get our footing. Yeah. But I just, so, you know, I'm a lot more comfortable (laughs) right here, but I'm afraid it might show, but we'll get there. Yeah, we'll, we'll get there. Um, before we jump into, I hope it didn't sound like it too I, much. I don't. I think it was probably okay. It took us a whole lot of takes, though. I'll yeah, put that one out there. Um, before we jump into today's episode, um, it's the first of a two-parter, and I do want to preface it with a little bit of a warning. Um, some of the things that we are going to be talking about: there is sexual abuse that's going to be discussed. There are some pretty graphic um, details of squalor and filth and maltreatment. Uh, so if you are sensitive to that kind of thing, maybe skip this, this week and next week. I maybe not next week. We may have to take a break between or yeah. Uh, So this week we're discussing one of the most sensational crimes of the last five years. It involves a child bride, multiple captain kangaroo haircuts, a Disney obsession and an Elvis impersonator. I saw Elvis this past week. I did. He, he was, was a on skating. He skates. was a skating Elvis. He was oh, going to a car show. And and also 13 children who were severely abused by their parents and hidden from the world. We are telling the tale of the Turpin family this week. And um our next Turpin episode, with this may be a split episode, you know, part one this week, part two, and then uh or a different episode next week, and then part two of the Turpins. Um I don't think part two of the Turpins is going to be quite as bad as part one. Um, But part one definitely has some kind of cringy things in it. So just be warned. I like all your qualifiers. I just want, I just want people to know what they're getting into. This is not as lighthearted as some of the other stories. Well, should we change on our uh, thing here? Should I change it to explicit this week? No, there's no bad words or anything. It's just the story itself is a little oof. Explicit. Um, Yeah. I'm, Maybe. Okay, but okay. 
So in order to really understand the most recent events in this story, we have to take a trip back in time to talk about Louise Robinette and David Turpin's families. Now, David's grandfather, King Turpin Jr., uh, he was a Pentecostal preacher who had married a 16-year-old girl almost half his age when his first wife, Nellie, died after giving birth to the final two of his eight children. King married their nanny, Bertha. She gave birth to 11 more children, bringing the total Turpin clan to 19 children. I said 19 children. Yeah. Although five did die in infancy. And there was at least one set of twins. Yeah. That's still a lot of kids. <laughs> I mean, no matter how you count them, yes. that's a lot of kids. <laughs> okay. So those children were brought up actively in the Pentecostal speaking, in the Pentecostal church, speaking in tongues from a young age and spending several hours a day in church. And I also want to add, too, that several of them, um, one of one of the children wrote a fasting handbook, and they're, they're, they're a very odd, from, from the jump, they're a very odd family. We are not to judge. They're a very odd family. Okay. <laughs> One of those children, Jim Turpin, married and settled down in Princeton, West Virginia. Betty Jean and Jim made sure that their children, including son David, were also brought up in King's Shadow. And the Turpin family became known in Princeton as a very solid religious family. Yes. Now, conversely, Louise Robinette's family had lived in Princeton for over a century her maternal grandfather, John Thomas Taylor, was a World War, II, World War II veteran who met a Pentecostal minister's daughter after returning home from the war. So already we've got the foundation here, um, Pentecostal, very strict religious upbringing that's going to come into play later on in the story. Um, John Taylor was a really smooth talker. He was a handsome man with a big smile who lobbied for the American Legion and was highly active in local politics. I wonder what he used on his uh, voice because we use narration vocal. Oh, yeah. I wonder I if he know. used natural voice I, or I don't uh, know or something that made his voice hmm. more booming through the microphone. I don't know. I, don't I think know. I I seem to remember um, that he was a big like a bigger guy too. He was a, a pretty tall dude. Um, he also. It got involved in real estate and built houses and car lots all over Princeton. And he opened the first Shell gas station in Mercer County, which was a huge success and made him extremely wealthy. However, John also had the reputation of being creepy. Young women would tell of weird and inappropriate physical contact at the gas station. But since there was literally nowhere else to get gas, there wasn't a whole lot that they could do. John Taylor molested his own daughter, Phyllis. Apparently, her mother had no idea what was going on. And when Phyllis was 17, she started dating Alan Wayne Robinette, a 19-year-old lay preacher. And they soon married. And exactly nine months later, the couple's first child, Louise, was born. Now, Phyllis is going to play an integral part in the story, too. Yeah. David Turpin was almost six feet tall at age 13. In addition to his towering height, David stood out from his bell-bottomed, long-haired peers in school by always wearing dress clothes and wearing very short hair. So he always kept a short haircut. He was very smart, but quiet and nerdy, 
choosing to play chess at recess ugh, while the <laughs> other kids were running around on the schoolyard. Nothing wrong with chess, but... I mean, it's unusual it's for unusual. this time. Yeah. And, yeah. One, one of David's childhood friends recalls that when we moved on to high school, he got a little wild and started wearing blue jeans. Whoa, look the, out. The high school senior loved church, cars, Star Trek, and 10-year-old Louise Robinette, whose family attended services with his. So at this point, now far be it for me to talk about age differences, but there are age differences in different times. Like if you are say 35 and married to a 50 year old, that is much more appropriate than if you are 18 and attracted to a 10 year old, which is what we're talking about here. Remember, David is a high school senior and Louise is 10 Now, Phyllis and Alan Robinette didn't have a lot of money of their own, which caused constant stress and arguments. Remember, her dad is John um, Taylor, who is the gas station owner, very wealthy. Phyllis also wasn't very interested in being a mother, relying on Louise to often care for her younger sister, Elizabeth. Like David, Louise was also a quiet child in school, and she was often the target of ridicule at the hands of her classmates. When she was 14, Louise's grandmother walked in on her husband, John, raping Louise. Mary, the grandmother, chased him out of the house and filed for divorce, but because John was very wealthy and very well-known, no police report was made in an effort to save face. For years, Phyllis had been taking her daughters over to her father's house for him to molest, receiving financial support in exchange. You know, I hate to say it, but I don't think this is unique. I don't, I, I, yeah. I don't, I don't think this is unique. I'm sure it's not. The after effects are going to be a little bit unique. The after effects are, but I'm it's absolutely t- positive this is going on across not it, just the United States, but so disturbing. many countries across the world. It's so gross. It makes my skin crawl. It's just really, ugh. Um. Now, at 15, Louise secretly started dating the 22-year-old David. Everyone thought the Turpins were good people, so no one really thought much about the fact that the two were spending so much time together. Now, David graduated from Virginia Tech and got a job in Fort Worth, Texas with, with defense contractor General Dynamics. And remember, he was very smart, and throughout his adult life, he had very high-paying, um, like, genius-level jobs. Now, one day in January, he walked into Louise's school posing as her father, signed her out of school, and took off with her to Texas. Okay, so that's basically kidnapping right there. Yes. Okay, the Robinette house was in chaos when Louise's parents found out, but eventually the devout preacher, Alan, decided that it was better to allow his daughter to marry than to burn. After he gave written permission for David and Louise to marry, they drove back to Princeton and married on February 11th, 1985, in a tiny, quiet church ceremony attended only by a few close family members. After Louise left, her parents' marriage started to disintegrate. When Alan caught Phyllis in an affair, she called in her father. He ordered his son-in-law out of the house that he had been paying for, and Alan filed for divorce the very next day. With only her income from being a cashier at Walmart, Phyllis became even more dependent on her father. In the words of Phyllis' youngest daughter, Teresa, she sold us to a 
wealthy pedophile. He would slip money into my hand as he molested me. He would come out to the car after every time and hand my mom money. And he thought that made it okay. And um, Phyllis had multiple children with multiple different men. It seems like she was just kind of always on the search for somebody that would take care of her. Um, and, and kind of, I mean, to me, this is typical textbook victim behavior. She was abused by her dad, but she didn't break the cycle. She allowed him to abuse her daughters as well. She depended on him fully for money. She found very little self-worth in her own eyes. Textbook. Um, Now, meanwhile, back in Fort Worth, David was making big money as a computer engineer on the F-16 Fighting Falcon. Um, The couple, David and Louise, ate out at pricey restaurants and spent time going to rodeos, Wild West shows, and Disneyland. I like rodeos, and I like Disneyland. They love Disneyland. This is a constant throughout their entire marriage, is they would always go to Disneyland. They had personalized Disney plates and everything. But back in Princeton, Phyllis had turned to prostitution, often leaving her kids in the car while she turned tricks. They didn't have much contact with their father and were often unclean and in old, dirty, too small clothes. Louise Turpin had always said that she wanted 12 children, and in 1987, she got started with her first. After Jennifer was born, Louise flew her mom and siblings out to California, where she and David were living for a visit. Her sister, Teresa, remembers that the house was very clean and well-kept and that the kids had the time of their lives visiting Disneyland, Universal, the Movie Land Wax Museum, and the Hollywood sign with their big sister. With David soon making a six-figure salary, remember this is in in 1987. So six figures was a lot. These trips became annual Robinette family traditions. And in 1992, Louise gave birth to her second child, a son named Joshua. And from then on, all their kids had J names. So we've got Jennifer and Joshua. Soon after Joshua's birth, the Turpins filed for Chapter 7. Okay, so you know what's going on in my mind right now. What's that? I'm trying to think of all the J names. There's several, like there's, I think there's a Jolinda in there. Um, Jordan. I think there's a Jessica. There's There's quite a few. Okay. Um... After Joshua was born, the Turpins filed for Chapter 7 bankruptcy. Although David made a ton of money, the family had maxed out their credit cards after living well beyond their means after Louise developed a gambling problem. But as we'll see, though, this was only the beginning. By 1996, Louise and David had four children when they came to visit Princeton. Teresa recalls that the kids were all identically and well-dressed, although a little odd. At the time, she just thought it was because Louise was a little strict. Louise and Teresa's sister, Elizabeth, asked if she could return back home with the Turpins and spend the summer, and Phyllis agreed. Of course she did. One less mouth to feed. She didn't have to worry about it anymore. However, Elizabeth started seeing red flags almost as soon as they began their drive back. In Louisiana, David suddenly got off the interstate. Louise said that they were going to gamble which shocked Elizabeth because gambling has always been against her family's strict religious beliefs. Once they all got back to to the Turpin home in Fort Worth, Elizabeth recalls that the children were called one by one. Now, this is really weird. They were called one by one 
to the table for meals. The children, she said, had to ask permission to eat or go to the bathroom. She said she never saw Louise or David show any affection to the kids. They stayed in the rooms, and they were all but forbidden to speak to Elizabeth. She also recalls David having a bad temper and flying off the handle of Louise on the spur of the moment. And she also recounted, too, that uh, Jennifer, the oldest daughter, had this weird, like, code sort of a thing with her mom where she would sit down and not only would she have to ask to eat, like, she would have to smile at Louise. And if she didn't smile, Louise would not give her permission to eat. And the same, like, she had to act cheerful the whole time. And when she was done, she had to smile at her again and ask permission to be done. It was, it was fair. Elizabeth said it was really weird. The story's going to get even weirder. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Elizabeth got a summer job and Louise insisted on driving her to and from work. She was not allowed to have friends, use the home phone, or even to tell people where she lived. David would tease Elizabeth about an ex-boyfriend, saying that he must have loved seeing her in a bikini. He told her that he had the hots for Louise since she was 10 years old and just got weirder and weirder until one day when Elizabeth was in the shower. On that day, Louise picked the bathroom lock with a coat hanger, and the couple came in and watched Elizabeth shower. When she got out, they laughed at her, and then it began to happen more and more. Just it, it happened again and again over the course of the summer. How old is she right now, Kim? Um, Elizabeth, she is like late high school, early college age. So she's not a little child that like, uh, not that me, being a little child, I don't know if that would make it any better or worse, but I mean, she was a young woman at this point that they were picking the lock and both of them coming in to watch her shower and like, cornering her and playing little creepy games with her and mocking her. It's so gross. It's all just gross. One day, Louise discovered Elizabeth had befriended a fellow worker and was regularly having lunch with him. She flew into a rage and kicked her sister out, only allowing Elizabeth to come get her things to take back home when Elizabeth threatened to call the police. So Elizabeth ended up making her way back home uh, to Phyllis's. And in 1997, Louise gave birth to baby number five, and eldest daughter Jennifer began second grade. Yes. Aunt Teresa, who had recently visited, remembered seeing dresses in Jennifer's closet with two and $300 price tags while the girl stank of dirty clothes and urine. Jennifer's teachers remember her always wearing the same clothes every day, often exhibiting disturbing behavior, like constantly touching her private area, talking about things that could have indicated sexual abuse. She was also blamed for a classroom infestation of lice, and she used an old Hershey bar wrapper as a scrunchie to hold back her long, greasy hair. At the end of 1998, Louise, who by this point had reconciled with Elizabeth, called her sister to proudly boast that they were maxing out their credit cards for Christmas before they filed for Chapter 7 again. Now, this is I guess that's a method. Yeah, it's going to come up again and again and again. I apparently there's a lot that I thought that you were kind of punished if you filed for bankruptcy. I don't know. But and I did a little bit of research on it. 
a lot of mortgage companies and stuff will forgive your debt after like two years. Like it, your slate is just wiped clean. So, and it's Gotta so- Gotta be rough on your credit though. But it's so easy to get credit cards. A lot like those starter high interest ones that they would just get new credit cards and start all over again. And nobody cared. They just wouldn't pay them off and start all over again. Um, Louise laughingly explained that although the family would lose their house- Chapter seven rules allowed them to keep anything they bought on credit, including their cars, as long as they were making some kind of a payment. Oh, they, they're gaming this system. They are totally. And this goes back to her gambling addiction, too. This is a kind of a form of gambling. She said that their debts would all be written off and they wouldn't have to pay for anything. So, yeah, she's absolutely scamming the system. In the spring of 1999, the bank finally foreclosed on the house. The Turpins pulled their kids out of school And then in July, the family moved to a home in Rio Vista, Texas, shortly after welcoming their seventh child. So we're on our way to 12. We're over half now. It's worth noting that the family that moved into the foreclosed home were so grossed out by the house estate that they took photographs showing grime kicking all the floors and carpets. There was an awful smell, and the walls were covered in dark stains that appeared to be feces. It does sound like an episode of Hoarders without the horde. Yeah. Uh, here in a little bit, I'm going to read from um, our source material and kind of give you some firsthand accounts of what it was like. The family's new house in Rio Vista was tucked away, with a population of only 744 and the nearest town being seven miles away. It's largely agricultural place with lots of cotton, hay, dairy cattle, and peanuts. <laughs> peanuts, okay. Everybody pretty much kept to themselves and minded their own business, which was perfect for the Turpins. David and Louise convinced their children that telling people their names or where they lived would contaminate the family. There was a family with kids across the street, but the Turpin children would never talk about their parents or school when they played together. So they were allowed out to play. They were, but they, and they wouldn't tell what their names were. Like the neighbor parents would ask them like what their names are. And Jennifer would be like, well, if you can guess, maybe we'll tell you that you're right. And so they wouldn't even tell what their names were. They wouldn't tell, like say anything about their parents. They were, yeah, they, they, the kids weren't allowed to come over to their house. They had to just kind of, yeah, it was very, very uh, strict. Yeah. Well, One of the neighbor kids, Ashley, said that she was in the house one time where she recalls seeing animal cages and newspapers strewn about the floors and piles with feces on it. They had dogs, cats, and goats, and the house smelled like poop. Now, Ashley said that she didn't think much about animals living in the house. I guess this was not super uncommon for the area. Um, I mean, it's a a farm area. We, our family, family, extended family raises goats and they had a, a little baby goat living in their house, it I was think, sick, for a little bit. And they, and they brought it in to hold it. Yeah. So, I mean, it's not super uncommon to have. By the way, the goat's doing fine now. Yeah. Um, so, it's not really uncommon, but obviously our family cleaned up after his name was Seven and uh, and the Turpin family did not. So, it's. It's, uh, it's not uncommon, but it is a little uncommon. We're not bringing goats in the house. Oh, no, we don't even have two goats. dogs, a cat or two dogs, two cats and a snake. The cats don't live in the house though. And they did when it got really cold. 
Well, that doesn't count. No, okay. they lived in the garage. That's not the house. It was at this point that Louise and David began really severely abusing their children. It went from slapping to hitting to throwing them around the room to leather belts and then wooden paddles or boat oars. Eventually, David, who carried out the bulk of the punishments, who would, you know, that kind of makes sense since it's their Pentecostal, very yeah. old school with that. It would be the father's responsibility to discipline the children. David finally graduated to beating the kids with metal tent poles. The Turpin parents would lay down strict rules for the kids that they believed were in keeping with the Pentecostal faith. And although they included things like annual baths. Yeah. Wait, now, didn't I read something that at some point that she kind of started dabbling in black magic? She did. And they kind of tried to intermingle. Yeah. I'm not really sure at what point during this, in the, in this story, but yeah, at some point Louise I have did. seen that at some point because we've watched a couple documentaries yeah, on this. Yeah, at some point Louise started getting into black magic and they kind of pulled a little bit of this thing and a little bit of that thing. So a little bit of like the extremist parts of Pentecostal um, and extremist parts of witchcraft and kind of mashed them together into this weird amalgamation of two very different religions um, and just kind of made up their own thing. Okay. I did not know that the Pentecostal faith included annual baths. Uh, it I doesn't. mean, I've, I've heard of people <laughs> taking, you know, like, like if the well was really low and yeah. stuff like that back in places where you had to depend on well water when the well was low, you might take a weekly bath, but I've never yeah. heard of an yeah. annual bath. Yeah. And these annual baths were a lot of times on like minor holidays, like, they would take a bath on Mother's Day or take a bath on like President's Day. Like it was a random, not like not Christmas, not Thanksgiving, not like not a big holiday. It was like President's Day or and kids before you're going to hug me on Father's Day. <laughs> today's the day of your annual bath. <laughs> yeah. Because you can keep your lice. I don't think there was a lot of hugging going on in this family. Okay. The kids were not allowed to wash above the wrist or else they were chained to their beds. Louise started homeschooling the kids, although Jennifer never got past third grade, and many of the siblings didn't learn anything beyond the first half of the alphabet. They did memorize lots of scripture, though, with some of the oldest memorizing whole books of the Bible. The kids were also fed so poorly that they suffered permanent physical and cognitive damage. As time went on, things got weirder and weirder. If yes. it could so it's imagine. Not, it's yeah. not weird enough already. Yeah. The family had a dumpster in the yard that was overflowing with trash. The grass was never cut, and David would shoot at cans in the front yard whenever the neighbors were out. Eventually, the children stopped coming out during the day, although neighbors would hear them playing out at night. Yeah, like in the backyard. And and they made kind of a big deal about the fact that David would shoot at cans in the front yard. Like it was very clearly to the neighbors. It was very Stay clearly. Away. Yeah, like I have guns, which I mean, that's fine if you have guns and that's your thing and that's what you're interested in. But I don't know of a lot of people. It was intimidation. It and, was totally intimidation. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's really interesting too to kind of think about um, – I don't know. A lot of the things 
and we'll, we'll get into this more next episode, but it's a real big question mark to me as to who was the primary perpetrator here because Louise didn't have a job as far as I know. David was the, the, the moneymaker, but he was also gone a lot. He was the one that enticed a young woman, a young They're girl. They're both guilty. They are, but who, it's going to get interesting as to who was leading whom, because you would think that a lot of the people would think that David is leading Louise and she's kind of under what his spell is. I don't know. To me, it doesn't matter. They each equally knew what was going on. Yeah, we'll talk, we'll talk more about it next week. That's going to be a fairly decent chunk of next week's episode, I think, but um, yeah, oddly over the years, there were times that David and Louise could have been found out. In 2001, their four-year-old was bitten in the face by the family dog. More than a day passed before David called 911 and little Joy, so there's one of your J names, little Joy was taken to the hospital for stitches and the dog was put down, which is not... The dog was put down because it had never had its rabies vaccination, so they didn't know if it had rabies. They didn't want to take any chances, so they just killed the dog. Are they uh, anti-vaxxers? Uh, they're anti-everythingers, okay. except maybe beating your kids. The incident was reported to the sheriff's office, but no officers ever went to investigate, which... <sighs> That sounds so weird to me. But again, I guess Rio Vista is a small, small little community. Everybody kind of keeps to themselves. That summer, David's parents spent the holidays with the family and they said everything was fine. A few months later, Louise's half brother came to visit and he reported that there was evidence of schoolwork, that they seemed to have an affluent lifestyle and that the children acted very military-like, lining up and standing at attention before they were allowed to get in the family minibus. But at that point, there were eight of them, so he assumed it was kind of out of a sense of necessity. The couple spent tons of money on toys that were clearly never used, and David and Louise would frequently go out to dinner and out on the town without the kids. Yeah, because they smelled. They didn't have baths. (laughs) Yeah. In 2004... This, this talks about, this is like your hoarder thing. In 2004, the family moved out of the house, which had become uninhabitable, into a double-wide mobile home that they just parked behind in the backyard. And that's when the parents started kenneling the children for days at a time as punishment. How bad were these kids? Kenneling them for days at I a time. I say that as a joke and yeah. jest. Yeah. yeah. Kenneling them. No kid is that bad. For days. Now, at some point after moving into the trailer, hold on, because this is about to get real crazy. David and Louise abandoned their children for four years. They found an apartment 40 miles south in Benbrook, Texas, taking two of their daughters with them. The remaining 10 kids had to fend for themselves, although every few days David would show up to drop off frozen food. Well, at least they didn't forget totally about them. Yeah. Four years it went on like this. And the kids lived in absolute filth. They were still, even though their parents... How many toddlers did they have at the time? uh, I'm not sure, but there were at least a few that were still in diapers. Um, The kids were still afraid to bathe above the wrist or to leave the house. And... They started 
essentially ratting each other out if someone broke the rules in an attempt to curry favor with their father. So if somebody did something that they weren't supposed to, they would narc and then that that kid would be rewarded and they would be expected to carry out punishment like the older, like the kid that told on the, the quote unquote bad kid would be expected to carry out their siblings punishment. The two eldest, Joshua and Jennifer, did each try to run away at different points, but Joshua chickened out and Jennifer called her mom to come pick her up after she was unable to fend for herself in town for more than an hour. She showed up. She said she wanted a job, but she didn't even know, like she didn't know where to go. She didn't know her address. She didn't know. And no one's getting suspicious yet. Nobody reported anything. When Louise turned 40, she went nuts. <laughs> she went yeah, nuts. Yeah, she's totally fine up until that point. She started drinking and got into witchcraft, and suddenly, well, there's the answer. Yeah, so now, so she hadn't been into witchcraft at this point, but now she's starting to get into it, and we're combining the religions now. And uh, she started dressing provocatively and hooking up with strangers she found on the internet. She was obsessed with snakes, believing they gave her power. And she was gambling more than ever. Louise and David would spend weekends in Vegas buying a new Mustang every year and rack up thousands of dollars in credit card debt. Because you can just declare bankruptcy and get to keep everything. Eventually, the family literally disappeared in the night after the property had been foreclosed upon and their vehicles had been repossessed. After they left, their neighbors um, across the street went to investigate. And now this is... um you remember we talked about Ashley, the the little girl that lived across the street. This is her account of um, she and her her dad, I guess, um, a, a neighbor. He said, we went up there and knocked on the door and we could hear the dogs indoors barking. So it was like, man, we've got to let these dogs out. When they opened the door, the Turpins, two pet chihuahuas ran out and hid under the house. They wouldn't come out, said Ricky, who was the neighbor, another neighbor. So we went in. The smell was rancid. All the carpeting had been ripped out and the floors were covered in feces and urine. The dogs had apparently survived by eating dirty diapers and drinking from the toilets, which were now empty. As they entered the bedroom, the stench became overpowering. It had been set up like a barracks with six six bunk beds stacked in a row. None of the beds have mattresses, but Ricky noticed ropes tied to some of the headboards. They ventured into the filthy living room that looked like it had been used as a makeshift schoolroom with eight small desks and educational posters tacked on the walls. There was a broken chalkboard, and scattered around the floor were an array of religious pamphlets and books. As they walked through the trailer, they noticed that all the doors, closets, toy chests, and even the refrigerator shared a disturbing feature. Everything was padlocked, said Ricky, when we saw this, we were like, oh, my God, what were they doing? They left. This, that was just the trailer. They left the stinking trailer to look at the house where the Turpins had lived for the first five years. They walked past an abandoned old Ford pickup, which had been used as a dumpster and which was overflowing with viney sausage cans, potted meat and diapers. It had been there so long the bags had withered and the trash was actually falling out and the critters were getting in there and eating. Um, the back door of the red brick house was wide open. So they walked in. The pungent smell was overwhelming. 
Ricky recalled, it's knee deep in filth, dirty diapers piled waist high. There's computers, toys, and trash. Toys still in boxes, never opened. Um, you could see rats jumping in and off of and out of all of the stuff. In the kitchen, they found a dead cat on the stove, a dead dog on the floor, several other animal corpses lying around. And at that point, it was like, they we have to get out of here. Wow. Yeah. It took the mortgage company three months to clean up the property. Now, on Hoarders, they go in, and we've seen some pretty bad yeah, houses here. And they're done in like three to five days. Yeah. So it took them three months to clean up this property. I can't imagine how bad it, it was. Yeah. So- they made uh, prospective buyers sign a hold harmless agreement before they even viewed the place. They spent about $30,000 to make it livable. In 2010, the family moved to a beautiful 2,470 square foot home in California, midway between San Diego and Los Angeles. To her family, Louise seemed to have a perfect house with perfect cars and well-behaved children with the husband to whom she had been married since she was 16 years old. In reality, David was unemployed. They made only $577.92 a month, and the family lived off credit cards. In October, he officially opened the City Day School, naming himself as principal and registering with the California Department of Education. Over the next seven years, the Turpins ran their school, and there was never a single visit from the state or even one inspection. And we say school in air quotes because it wasn't a school. It was just their house and it's filth. But nobody ever came to inspect it or see what was going on, see if there was actually any education taking place. According to Jordan Turpin, it was in California that her parents started making the children spend an average of 20 hours a day in their rooms. Louise encouraged the kids to keep journals, which I thought was kind of weird, and they let Jennifer have a smartphone. That's evidence. Yeah. They let Jennifer have a smartphone. They let Joshua have a camera. But the only time that the children were allowed up was 11 p.m. to 3 a.m. They had no access to TVs, radios, or newspapers. In 2011, David's brother and his family came to visit. These two families went to Disneyland together. And David's niece, Miranda, doesn't remember anything weird at all, but that are just her cousins were really nice and things seemed just fine. A week after that, the family again filed for chapter seven. In October of that year, David and Louise spared no expense driving to Las Vegas to renew their vows for the first time after 26 years of marriage. And this way it's interesting because you remember their original wedding was a tiny little church wedding with nobody there. It was real small and mm-hmm. it was under duress essentially. Now I say that they renewed their vows for the first time because Elvis impersonator Kent Ripley would recall the Turpins visiting two more times for repeated ceremonies, all of which involved the kids. And they were expensive ceremonies, too, where he would sing and they would do it was kind of an interesting thing. But in 2012, Jordan Turpin alleges that on Thanksgiving, when Louise was out of the house, her father called her to the living room and pulled her pants down. He then lifted her onto his lap. But at that point, he heard Louise coming home and up the stairs, and she was able to get away. Now, it's not really clear whether David had any sexual contact with any of his other kids, although over the years, he did continue inappropriate advances toward the teenage Jordan. 
In May 2014, somehow the family managed to purchase a brand new home in Paris, California for $350,000. Something is wrong with the system. I'm not, no kidding. And when I say brand new, I don't mean brand new to them. I mean brand new like they were the first owners. Things were really weird during this time because while Louise got super violent with most of the kids, leaving them chained to their beds for most of the day, Joshua got to take some classes at the local community college. But that all ended after two years in the spring of 2016 when Louise found out that Joshua had a female friend. After walking out to his mom's car with the girl and literally having to ask permission to be his friend, 22-year-old Joshua wasn't allowed to leave the house again. Hmm. Okay. So these people, we've kind of set the stage. Yeah. They're strange. Yeah. Yeah. In December 2017, Joshua gave little sister Jordan his old cell phone for Christmas. She promptly set up several social social media accounts under the pseudonym Lacey Swan, where she would do online journaling and perform original songs. Through this connection with the outside world, Jordan was able to quickly make some friends and feel sort of an empowerment. Soon after, in January, David's job was transferred to Oklahoma City, and Jordan finally decided that she had had enough. On January 14, 2018, 17-year-old Jordan Turpin and her 13-year-old sister, Jolinda, climbed through their bedroom window at 5.30 a.m. After sneaking past only a few houses, Jolinda became too scared to continue and turned back. Jordan dialed 911 and told the dispatcher, I live in a family of 15 people and my parents are abusive. They abuse us and my two little sisters. Right now, they're chained up. They chain us up if we do things we're not supposed to. They will wake us up at night and start crying, and they really wanted to call somebody. I wanted to call y'all and help my sisters. The operator thought Jordan was a small child and asked her her name, which Jordan misspelled. She had swiped a piece of mail when the dispatcher asked the Turpin address, and Jordan responded with the numbers 925-707-774, which was her zip code plus her house number. So they didn't even know that. No, she yeah. didn't know her address, didn't know a phone number, nothing. Yeah. When asked if she was near her home, Jordan replied, yeah, I think I've never been out. I don't get out much, so I don't know anything about the streets or anything. She then went on to say, I think my father has guns. I haven't seen them, but they've talked about it. When asked if she went to school, Jordan said, our mother tells people We're private schooled, but we really don't go to real school. I haven't finished first grade, and I'm 17 years old. Jordan went on to explain that she didn't know what medication was and that her mother didn't spend time with us either. I take care of myself, and my mother finds food for us, but we never talk. She said that the stench in the house was so bad that she would sometimes wake up unable to breathe and would sneak open a window for some fresh air. We don't take baths, she said, stating that the last time that she had bathed was almost a year ago. Well, they get their annual bath. Yeah. It's, it's not time yet. Yeah. I don't know if we need to go to the doctor. Officers re- responded immediately, arresting David, who was crying uncontrollably, and Louise spat at the officer's feet. They heard them coming, and Louise um, 
said that, you know, she, the, the older kids said, I think it was Joshua even, um, told Joshua and Jennifer to go unchain the rest of the kids. Uh, but they didn't get all of them unchained in time. So there were still kids that were chained to the bed when the officers arrived. Um, you know, even though they were unchained, the the cops probably would have asked and the kids would have been too scared oh, yeah. to even say, yeah, they keep us chained up. I can't imagine what this must have been like for the Turpin kids. Like they don't ever get out. And, and so I read some different, so uh, like psychologists and stuff and their trips to Disneyland and things like that, how scary that must have been for them because the sensory overload was so had to have been so intense because when you just live in this little, you know, 10 by 12 or however big their room was. And he's wearing his bowl haircut now, right? Who, David? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Um, so that's where we're going to end for this week. And we'll pick back up again next week for the aftermath of the Turpin arrest, including the children's hospital stay and the trial of what might be America's worst parents. So we'll find out what happened um, next week or in the conclusion, either next week or the following week of uh, the Turpin 13. Um, you it, know what I've learned? What's that? We can just get all the credit cards we want to run them up and declare bankruptcy. And I, they're going to give us new cards. I don't think that that is the best lesson to take away from this episode, but okay. Um, but yeah, it was uh, one, one of the kids, Jordan, finally had enough. And she finally, I don't know how she got the bravery. Um, because really by the time that Joshua, between the time Joshua gave her that cell phone and the time that she kind of escaped was only about a month, maybe two at the most. And, what were they thinking? And so at that point, um, you know, she had kind of made some friends on Facebook and people that followed her on YouTube and stuff. So she had talked to people from the outside world, but it was only for a month or two. I wonder if any of those people had influence on her and say, you need to get out of there. Oh, I'm sure. You need to call the cops. I'm sure. If you push 911, you'll get the cops. They probably didn't know they could push 911 to get the cops. They may not have. Um, and I think that, uh, you know, Jordan didn't have any cell service on her phone. It was only, I guess, Wi-Fi. So, but she somehow... Uh-huh. Wi-Fi calling. So, well, she somehow that knew... Button. She somehow knew that um, because it was emergency. Like it was, you know, cell phones have that emergency access thing that you don't even have to have cell service activated on a phone. You can dial 911 on any cell phone. It'll work. I bet David and Louise didn't know that. Yeah, I don't know if they knew or if they even, they. I mean, they had their children so terrified of, I mean, they were beat for their literally their entire lives. Um, the only, there was a two-year-old at this point in time, the last of the 13 kids, um, who I guess Louise did dote on and take really good proper care of. But even what, already- What, she got a bath every six months? Yeah. Even at this point, even at two years old, the baby was already getting pinched and like hit with pencils and like little, you know, not as bad as the older kids, obviously, but was still, Louise was starting to okay. abuse the baby too. I'm going to guess there's mental illness going on because I just, for the life of me, I cannot see how a parent can do anything like that to their child. You know, we have this case going on right now in Southwest Ohio mm -hmm. where the mother, there were three kids and the the mother's boyfriend didn't like the kids. So they took them and abandoned the kids at a park in the middle of winter 
and drove off. And the little boy grabbed hold of the car and basically ran over and killed the child. They left. They went back, probably because they were afraid and they, yeah. you know, they're going to get caught. They went back, picked up the boy's body and took the two little girls. They went back to their house, kept the boy overnight, and then they took the kid and they threw him in the Ohio River off the bridge. And he may have been, they're saying, I, I think they said that he may have been alive at that point. Yeah, who Barely knows? unconscious, who, who knows? Who but knows? in a coma or whatever. People are, yeah. And if you look at Louise Turpin, like you can see, she looks crazy. She she smiles in all of her pictures, like her mugshot and stuff. She's got this real, you just want to punch her in the face because she has this real smug look on her face and all of her pictures. And she's got these big bug eyes and wild hair. Okay, last week we said we were going to lighten up after the Doomsday episode, and we didn't. We didn't. We'll get there. Oh. Okay, so. I'm worn out after this one. It, it's a lot. It is a lot. Yeah. Um, like I said, this is the m- much more graphic of the two episodes. Uh, the next the next Turpin episode is not going to be quite this heavy because, in fact, there's going to be some bright spots. There's gonna, definitely going to be some sadness um, because you're going to hear about the kids' recovery, but there's definitely some bright spots in there, too. Um, All right. So, so enough know, of the turpins. I know. For I don't the know night. what to say after yeah, that. But en- yeah, enough it's of the turpins for the night. Um, how do people get hold of us? You can find us at, uh, oh, I almost said the 937 podcast. You can find us at anhourofyourlife.com. Um, we're also on all the socials Facebook, Twitter, uh, Instagram, An Hour of Your Life. Or you can write to us if you just want to send us an email. It's gmail, uh, alosthour at gmail.com. Okay. Trying to keep up with two podcasts is a little bit taxing mentally. Anything else we need to mention tonight? I think that's it. Um, I'm really interested. After we did our cicada episode and we did all this big run up to the cicadas. They're still not here. I haven't seen any. Uh, Chad, Our buddy Chad Wells lives up in Vandalia and he posted a bunch of pictures the other day. He's got them up there. Um, I hear there's a bunch in Maryland, but none where we are. So if you are... Well, the, the news is saying they're going to come because we've had a couple warm days now, and yeah. we know it takes sixty-four degrees for the ground to heat up. So it's, it's interesting to see though because any, any day now that same news also said that they think that we have um, urbanized over top of the cicadas. That in the last seventeen years, um, we've built enough houses and roads and stuff that we'd basically just piled on top of them. There ought to be plenty of cicadas at where we live. I know. So I don't know. If you're seeing cicadas, drop us a line. Send us some pictures. We'd love to share them with the world, but we haven't seen any yet. A little disappointed. This. All right. All right. So from our studios in Sugar Creek Township. Thanks for spending an hour of your life with us. Our source for both Turpin episodes is going to be the book, The Family Next Door, The Heartbreaking Imprisonment of the 13 Turpin Siblings and Their Extraordinary Rescue by John Glatt.